camaraderie between soldiers, as it were, meaning all members of the military, is there regardless of where or when you serve. It's a member of a big fraternity, and you can talk on somewhat the same level. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation on the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Doug Sandberg, who lives in uh, Port Jervis, New York. I understand that's near the junction of the states of Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And he is joining us uh, from his home, connecting with us in our studio here in West Bend, Wisconsin. Morning, Doug. Good morning, Bob. It's actually the states of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Oh, what did the, I say? On the Delaware River. Did I put Pennsylvania in there by accident? No, you put Delaware. Delaware in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate the clarification. Um, Doug is an Air Force veteran. He served from 1968 to 1972. That qualifies him as a Vietnam-era veteran. Doug served, uh, I think you mentioned your entire career at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. That's not one of the warmer spots in the winter, is it? Well, yeah, it gets a bit frosty. Uh, with the wind chill, 50 below zero is no big surprise. Oh, my. How is it that you enlisted in the Air Force? Uh, did you consider other options, including the draft, et cetera, and think that was your best choice? Yeah, I considered, exactly, I considered the draft, and uh, I uh, wasn't in the best physical shape and didn't feel like taking a stroll in the jungle, so I enlisted in the Air Force. And did you know going in what your military occupational specialty, your, your job would be, or was that simply by chance that you ended up where you did? Well, it was the delayed enlistment program at the time. And I joined actually in, did all the preliminary stuff while I was in high school. And then the deal was if they couldn't fit you up with uh, what they tested you for and what you selected as your air force specialty code, AFSC, then you did not have to raise your hand. And as it turns out, I wanted to go into computers. I had been an electrician's helper for a little while. 
and I got tired of crawling underneath houses and uh, in attics and cleaning trucks and stuff. So I said, well, I want to get into computers such as they were in 1968. So at the end of the deal, I was informed that the computer schools were full and they would uh, temporarily make me a cook. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and um, they uh, said, well, the only other thing we could do is your aptitude and you already have some experience with um, electronics and electricity. So we can make you a 542XO, which is an electrician. However, that school is full as well. So we would uh, assign you to a base to do on the job training with a trainer. And that's what happened. Interesting. Uh, I had never heard of that particular assurance by any of the branches of the military that if they couldn't provide the school you chose, uh, you'd kind of get an unexpected payoff. But uh, very interesting. You know, that uh, electrical interest that you had took a really considerably prior to your enlistment. That was an interest of yours uh, early in high school. And I'm speaking of uh, your interest in radio. Tell me about that. Well, it started with an interest in ham radio, amateur radio. I was a, a novice, which means you're a, um, that's a license and you could operate CW, which is telegraph code, Morse code. And I had a transmitter and a receiver in my bedroom and a, what we called a dipole antenna strung up between a couple of trees in the backyard. And we were, um, we lived on a lake in uh, northern New Jersey. We were part of the, uh, I guess you'd call it the locals, um, not to be um, confused with the gentry, which is the New York City uh, folks that have a lot of money and come up for the summer. And um, one of my friends was a doctor's son, and he had an interest in amateur radio, and pretty soon our interest turned to commercial radio. So he had the, um, he had the resources I didn't have, and they had a guest cabin on their property that we transformed into a radio station and um, of sorts with a, uh, we went to, uh, made several trips to New York City in the and the footprint of the World Trade Center used to be a street called Cortland Street. And it was rife with um, surplus stores and electronic surplus stores. And you could buy just about anything you wanted there. So we got uh, some of the necessary pieces and parts and built a little mixer board. <laughs> we uh, somewhere got an old jukebox and we actually took the guts out of the jukebox and set the... the um, the mechanics with the records and the, uh, the turntable and everything out in the other room and elongated the, uh, the harness back into the, uh, into the announce booth. And, uh, we had the control panel back in there so we could just push the buttons and that was wired into a little mixer board. <laughs> and we had a couple of turntables and such. So, and we built a little transmitter, which was a, a uh, hundred milliwatts, one tenth of a watt. Oh my. So it got you across the parking lot. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what well, it must have given you quite a sense of discovery. In those days, radio was a bigger deal than it is now. Of course, we're competing against, uh, you know, all kinds of other media now. And it's actually, I see the time when uh, you're not going to have necessarily a radio in your automobile. Really? What would you have? Yeah. 
Well, you would have a portal, which radio would just be one of the options, as it is today, kind of. Mm-hmm. But still, predominantly, radio is, you know, the, the, the go-to. But uh, I think change, things are changing over time. Of course, it's generational as well, because younger folks are just uh, so adapted to um, the digital world that they uh, rely on a whole bunch of other stuff beside radio. Well, your learning curve took a pretty steep um, rise when you got to Minot Air Force Base. Uh, You encountered a defense system there that um, most people have only heard about, but you literally saw face-to-face. Will you tell us about those years? Sure. Uh, I was initially assigned to uh, the 82nd Combat Support Group, which everything on in SAC, you were either in in a combat role or in a support of combat. And SAC and, stood uh, for SAC stood for Strategic Air Command. That's correct. Right. And uh, I was assigned to the um, electric shop, and we basically, when I started, just uh, we basically took care of base facilities. We had fifteen hundred houses. We had schools. We had commissaries. We had didn't have a hospital, but we had a medical uh, building. Um, and all kinds of things, plus all of the hangars and the maintenance shops and all that stuff in support of uh, an air base. Mm-hmm. So the, the complement was a, um, a full complement of B-52 Stratoforce bombers. Um, to support them were KC-135, which is the older style uh, in-air refuel tanker built on a 707 frame. F-106 Fighter Squadron, which was the defense component, and a bunch of um, old um, cargo aircraft with various vintages and a bunch of Hueys helicopters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it was about 100 uh, Minuteman three ICBMs. Now, the, the conversion went from Minuteman to Minuteman three, and simply meant that carried that one vehicle carried three separately targetable nuclear warheads. And these were stored in some very specially built holes in the ground for a different, uh, for want of a better description, that were called silos. Is that right? That's correct. And they were spread out over a, a large piece of real estate. Some of them were over uh, an hour away from the base. And what did you have to do with them? Well, initially from base civil engineers, I went into, I was assigned to a roving maintenance team. And so every 10 silos had one launch control facility. And that basically, the, the analogy I'll give you for visual is that it looked like a building above the ground, just a plain building. And indeed it was, it was a, a day room and a sleeping quarters and a kitchen and offices for the, um, the support staff, the security guys and the site manager and the rest of the guys that were there on shift. And then if you went in, there was an elevator shaft. And if you went about, I don't know, four stories down into the ground, uh, you were confronted with a giant vault door. And behind that vault door was what they called the tunnel junction. And on to the left and to the right, were, uh, I'll call them giant contact coal capsules. <laughs> and in, in the left hand was all the support stuff, all the 
mechanical stuff, all the HVAC and the backup power. And to the right was actually the capsule where the, uh, the two officers were on duty 24 by 7. I imagine they still are. Uh, well, not the same two guys. They'd be pretty old by now. But uh, they were there. And that, uh, if you can picture a, a, um, a freight car or a tractor trailer uh, suspended by four big uh, Monroe shock absorbers hung in the midst of this uh, capsule and a, and, a, and a vault door going in there. So that was the command center for their 10 silos. Mm-hmm. And then we would go out and just take care of stuff at the launch control facilities. And in about three years to the day, I made E-5, which is staff sergeant in the Air Force, and I was appointed to the NCO in charge of the missile electric shop, which we actually took care of the electrical components in the silo that supported the missile. So you were face-to-face with the missiles themselves? Oh, yeah. What did it feel like to be literally right next to what is probably among the most destructive force on Earth? Well, it's, uh, I mean, you get used to it. It's pretty surreal. I mean, to get down to the bottom of the silo, which there was a sump pump, bottom that had to be greased that was one of the things one of the more mundane tasks that we did and there was called an elevator work cage which was a curved scaffold motorized scaffold and you would once you penetrated the site and got everything opened up and had permission to be there and nobody came out to shoot you um we uh, strapped into that and went down to the bottom and hopped out and of course if you looked up from that position, you saw the thrusters on the bottom of the engines and uh, wondered if anybody would remember that you were down there greasing the sump pump in the bottom of the silo if <laughs> Armageddon became a reality. You're right. I think surreal is a perfect word. Yeah. And I was assured it wouldn't matter because you would only hear a hiss and then you wouldn't feel a thing. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel as if you had a, a a rather important sense of duty to uh, the defense of the U.S. How, how did it affect you mentally? I'm not sure um, that that ever occurred to me. I was doing a job, and um, I knew what I, I mean. I knew what we were dealing with, but I don't recall ever feeling, although it was clear to all of us, and it's been made a lot clearer as the years go on, and I talk to veterans, um, that we were all involved. Everybody had a key role, regardless of your job. So, yeah, I, I, I guess you could say that, but I don't recall consciously thinking that at the time. Well, it's interesting. You said everybody, from your conversations with veterans, you realized that everybody had a, a role to play, and your air base uh, of those years, Minot, was actually the, uh, the uh, takeoff point for... B-52s that uh, bombed South Vietnam, isn't that right? That's correct. Well, yeah, not South Vietnam, but Vietnam, North Vietnam, and, and where our enemies were. Uh, it was called Arc Light, was the mission, and they would deploy from Minot, and the other, our sister base was, of course, Grand Forks, which is also in North Dakota on the eastern side. And uh, there were other bases in the United States that were sacked, but... Uh, yeah, our birds would go over and and um, and run 
uh, bombing missions, basically to deprive the enemy of any cover at all. So it was a massive um, carpet bombing of installations. And of course, I'm not sure that the, and, and uh, well, I am, I am sure that the, uh, that the uh, B-52s did not deploy napalm, but there was a lot of that used. And of course, then there was a lot of that uh, lovely um, weed killer called Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Did you give some thought to uh, re-enlisting after your four-year stint? I did, but um, and they offered me some um, VRB, variable re-enlistment bonus, but it wasn't that that great. And at that point, when, once you get into aircraft or missiles or anything around them, the task becomes very, very... Um, guided by uh, techniques and regs and rules and uh, tech manuals. Mm -hmm. and so it was literally to the point that uh, if you would go up to a panel and it would say, okay, so you have this problem, turn to troubleshooting. And it would say, okay, locate this screw and take your screwdriver, part number such and such, and insert in the head of the screw. Oh, my goodness. Turn four times <laughs> counterclockwise, and if it doesn't come loose, go to troubleshooting section 2B. I mean, it wasn't literally that bad, but it was getting that bad. And, mm -hmm. and I'm a person that likes to think for myself. And I looked around, and it's not a bad life, but it's not for everybody. And mm -hmm. I said, look, you know, I could, I could probably stay in for uh, 20 years and retire at 40-something with a nice pension. But, eh, I want to be out on my own. I want to <laughs> listen, listen to myself and, and do what, what I think is best. Well, and in fact, you began uh, the journey to become a master electrician and uh, began to work in the electrical field with uh, really some sizable electrical contractors on on some notable jobs. Well, I did. Uh, I was into the electrical field, just the electrical as an electrician up until 1980. So I, I worked for. Uh, during that period of time, I worked for two big notables. I worked for E.I. DuPont in a plant that made um, polymer intermediates. What are those? Blasting, blasting caps. Oh, no kidding. And I uh, worked in that plant as a plant electrician, one of many. And then I, I also worked, I, I was doing contracting and such on the side, and but I also worked for um, Reynolds Aluminum in a a beer can plant in Middletown, New York, as a plant electrician. Hmm. And uh, in 1980, I, I had a friend that uh, lived down the street from me, and he started, he was a German fella, and he started working for a local company called KW Control Systems, which was a North American rep for a German company called Pillar. Hmm. And Pillar... Uh, made very highly specialized motor generators. Now, a motor generator is an electric motor driving an electric generator. And basically, these were converting the frequency from what comes in on the lines off of the grid to something that IBM specifically needed for mainframes mm -hmm. and data centers. Okay, so that was the product. We had 5,000 or so in the United States. We had them lined up outside in the, in the, in the shop labeled in, 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 in boxes labeled for IBM. 
they pre-purchased this stuff. So every place they put in one of these uh, mainframes, they got one or two or three pillar motor generators. Hmm. Then, uh, and, and we, there was 10 of us, uh, technicians that went around and fixed these things or maintained them. They were big. They were 100, um, 100 horsepower motors. And um, so uh, Pillar, a couple of years later, came out with a UPS, uninterruptible power system. And in typical German fashion, it was bigger, better, more robust than anything uh, anybody else had. Mm. And so the company said, well, we've got the frequency converter and now we have the UPS. But if we want to hold our place and expand, we have to supply everything in between. So we became a systems integrator for for data centers, which meant basically that uh, we would uh, bid on and sell complete everything you needed for a power system in a data center. That included the UPS, the frequency converters, the batteries for the UPS, the switch gear to connect everything, automatic transfer switches that had a function when the power goes out, they transfer over to the alternate source and all the other stuff in between. And we would literally wire this stuff up in the shop for witness tests. Mm. And I mean, we had a huge shop and this was, this was a big deal. So we were doing, I mean, we're, we're talking about the big investment, you know, Chase, Morgan Stanley, Payne Weber, Dean Witter, all the big, big um, banks and, and data centers. So uh, yeah, so that's where I, I, I spent uh, 13 years uh, ultimately as national service manager and um, AVP of service. It sounds, given your background, uh, even back to your teen years with building a radio <laughs> and a radio station, that your career offered a whole bunch of uh, ongoing discoveries and and uh, new realizations and, and all of those things that must have held your interest. Oh, yeah. And um, in... Uh, Let's see, 1993, well, 1992, the, the company, the owner of the company was, um, wanted to get out. He wanted to retire. An old German, well, he was an old German guy. He was a German guy, and, and he didn't, but he didn't trust anybody. So what he did was recruit friends and family to come in regardless of their qualifications and basically, he moved to a marina that he owned in Marathon Key and was intent on running the company via remote control. Well, didn't work out quite that way. And um, having invested 13 years of my life, um, I made my feelings known about where we were going and what was happening. And I was politely asked to leave hmm. Monday morning. So I did. So I went on to... Uh, Ultimately, through a set of circumstances, uh, went to work for another a, a, a larger company called Emerson Electric out of St. Louis, Missouri, mm -hmm. and uh, they had a division called ASCO Automatic Switch Company, which was a hundred years old and supplied automatic transfer switches. Now, if you're lucky enough to have a, a permanent setup at your house when the lights go out. The generator starts up and the lights come back on. Same is true in big buildings, except the, the scale is much, much larger. Um, so we supplied the automatic transfer switches and all the big 
uh, switchboards at the big diesel engine generators. We're talking um, V V style engines, 16 cylinder Caterpillars and Cummins and uh, all these big um, engine generators that you'll find in, in big hospitals and uh, big data centers and banks and government buildings. Mm -hmm. World World Trade Center, which is well the 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 Freedom Centers now or the Freedom Tower, but the old World Trade Center was all our stuff. And uh, I was asked, uh, we had uh, five, five or six guys when I started and 57 privately held companies that were licensed service centers around the U.S. And um, I was intent, I was asked to build a true um, factory service division and uh, under the name of ASCO Services. And we had to do a lot of stuff. So uh, we did that with the help of a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. And uh, we built that over, uh, I retired in 2010. And um, we built it from uh, five people to, as far as mechanics goes, over 150. And from 600,000 to 52 million. Wow. By the time I retired. So that's, uh, that's what happened there. Doug Sandberg is our guest uh, today on the uh, Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. So later in retirement, you actually made a very unique turn that I want to uh, uh, dial into, and I guess that pun is intended, and that is <laughs> you uh, made the move to uh, public radio and, and ultimately uh, to a very specialized show that uh, is on the air currently at uh, a public radio station in uh, New York, and it is called Let's Talk Vets. Would you tell us about that? Sure, be happy to. Um, looking around one day for something to keep my mind occupied and uh, found this ad for people to volunteer at this radio station. Radio station is uh, 30, 32 years old, all volunteer, except for the manager and the assistant manager and the program director. They're about the only staff. Uh, and they have managed to stay on the air and be productive for 32 years, which is saying a lot. And um, so I, I called them up and went up, sent them my resume, and went up and interviewed and was, um, I would say hired, but <laughs> I was assigned a board shift on Thursday morning from 9 to noon just uh, riding the board, as we would say in radio, and in and out of NPR and uh, American media, American public media programming, other satellite programming with uh, station IDs, man mandated station IDs on the hour and a half hour, uh, weather and um, PSAs, and in the wintertime, school closings. So I did that, and, and, and I got that under my belt pretty well. Well, a couple of years before, I had applied for and gotten a slot on a Veterans Day program at another local radio station, WNNJ, which happened to be a station I worked at when I was in high school. Uh, now it's an iHeart radio station, much different operation. But anyhow, they had 10 vets, which would do 10 one-hour segments on Veterans Day, and it was called Vets Rock. <laughs> and you would submit your playlist and then come in and, and talk about stuff in between uh, songs. And um, so I did that for two years. The second year... I said to the VP of programming, I said, hey, I said, uh, his name was Gary. I said, Gary, I said, you know, we do 
Veterans Day once a year. We sell cars and we, we have parades and hot dogs and Uncle Charlie drinks too much beer. What about doing something between Veterans Days for the veterans? What do you mean? I said, how about a monthly program? Well, that's a, that's a great idea. Why don't you give me a proposal? So I wrote an executive summary and sent it to him. And he came back ultimately a couple of weeks later. He said, look, we, we talked it over and it doesn't fit our format. And I said, you understand that, but for veterans and, and active service members, you wouldn't have a format. You get that, right? <laughs> so that was the end of that. Um, I went on to WJFF, took that board shift, and basically applied to them to do the same thing. And they said, okie dokie. So my first program, I think, was in August of 2018, and I haven't missed one yet. And now we do two uh, two a month so and we we just we, we we interview i mean i have done programs with vets who are very very angry yet from vietnam and from the sandbox and guys who write and we have featured some of their writing and some of it's pretty hard to listen to we've done military sexual trauma we've done veteran suicide and we've done a lot of the good stuff like uh Places that have programs for vets to build kayaks and then test them. Mm -hmm. All kinds of stuff. So we've been doing that for, uh, you know, this uh, Wednesday night coming, which is the 14th of um, July, uh, will be my 49th broadcast. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I read the title of your show and I thought if you put the emphasis um, differently, you get kind of two different meetings. So it could be, let's talk vets, meaning it probably could cover a lot of veteran-related issues, or it could right. be, let's talk vets, vets. which yeah, is an idea. invitation to veterans to open up and, and express themselves, which um, have they done that? Have you found, How have you found your veteran participants? Yeah, uh, all different kinds of ways. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, along the way, I joined a couple of organizations, one of which I belong to now, a very active organization called the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force. And it started with three people. One of, one of them is a guy that I interviewed with the, um, what is called the Joseph P. Dwyer Vet to Vet Peer Counseling Organization. And they operate locally in Middletown, New York, under the auspices of the Orange County, New York Department of Health. And the main guy out there, uh, Larry Newman, and, and, and a couple of his compadres in other organizations would meet once a month for breakfast and uh, talk about vets that they knew collectively because they, they offered different serv- they each offered different services and were involved in a different aspect of veteran support. So they would discuss veterans and what have you at these breakfasts and Pretty soon it, it, it morphed into this uh, Veterans Task Force, which now has uh, well in excess of 150 member organizations and folks, and we meet once a month. And uh, I also have been asked to do for the last six or seven meetings, they've asked me to open the meeting with a monologue. So I, I do a monologue at the beginning of each one of those meetings. So. So and, this, and basically, uh, I, I, I take leads. I take leads from the subject matter of those meetings. People that speak in those meetings, 
and something that piques my interest, I write their name and their contact information and then follow up with them after the meeting. Is there a similarity in the stories that veterans from Vietnam or from Iraq or Afghanistan have shared with you? Are, are there some common threads? Well, the similarities, I mean, on a very broad scale, um, the camaraderie between soldiers, as it were, meaning all members of the military, is there regardless of where or when you served. It's a member of a big fraternity, and you can talk on somewhat the same level. The common thread really comes down to, and, and of course, the, the military aspect of you could all joke about the same type of stuff in the military, some of which is really stupid and absurd, and some of it is really good. But you have a common ground there because everybody knows what you're talking about. But the common thread with respect to folks that have seen action, as they used to say, or combat, is post-traumatic stress. And I don't care what you call it. Back Going back to the Civil War, it was called Soldier's Heart. And uh, one of my fellows that I interviewed, uh, a Vietnam vet who wrote prolifically and still does and is a licensed mental health counselor, <clears throat> no longer active, but um, he told me that he has concluded, regardless of what you call it, the root cause of post-traumatic stress, or as I call it, post-traumatic stress disorder, which uh, assumes a diagnosis but he said the, the root cause of that is moral injury. And moral injury, quite simply, is the inability of your conscience to reconcile something that your brain has seen. And it creates confusion. It's antithetical. You've done something, you've seen something, it's totally antithetical to your upbringing. Do you get a, a sense of optimism from the veterans that you speak to or those that... Uh choose to share with you openly, is there a pessimism or a fatalism? I'm, I'm just trying to uh, tap into what your experiences have been with this variety of individuals that you've spoken to. Well, one of the biggest issues that they face, uh, and this is, is, you know, we talk about this in the context of people that have seen action, but if you were in the military for 20 years and that's all you knew, you would have the same problem. Uh, if you came from a small town, let's say, and you weren't the football hero, okay, and there was no job prospects in that town and you weren't college-bound, the military offers an excellent way out, right? Mm -hmm. And so you and, – and without without that kind of – I don't want to say intellect, but without, without that type of background or that type of intention, uh, you may be assigned to combat or maybe you're going to a, a – a, uh, you know, a, a battery, a, uh, a gun battery, artillery. So you learn how to do that, and you go into basic training, and you know as well as I know and everybody else knows it's been in, the, the, the thing of basic training is to break everybody down, regardless of your socioeconomic uh, status, and you all become uh, lower than a snail. Mm -hmm. And then they build you up as a unit from there. So now you, you are a unit, you're a lean, mean fight machine, you've got camaraderie, you belong to something you've never belonged to before, and you spend, uh, let's, you spend 20 years. Now you get out. Now you go back home. 
what do you do? You can't explain to anybody what you've done because they don't understand. And it, it's a real problem. So the transition, the simple transition from the military to the civilian is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then add into that the fact that you saw some things that no human should ever see or did some things that are antithetical to the way you were brought up and you were told it's okay, um, just adds to that problem. So the transition is a big deal. And, um, you know, these guys come home and the typical thing is they get real quiet and antisocial and just looking for an excuse to punch somebody in the face because they're angry. And pretty soon that takes a toll on family and uh, jobs and what have you, whatever else they have. So the, the successful programs have things that, that take their mind off. For example, the one I mentioned before, there's a, an organization up in Ulster County called the uh, Hudson Valley Center for Veterans Reintegration. And they have, amongst other things, they started with a kayak building program because the founder was an angry vet who for some reason or another decided to build a kayak from a kit, found it took his mind off of things and said, this is a great deal. So with a couple other people, they started this thing. And now that, that is a longstanding program. They have what's called the warrior writers workshop, which teaches them how to take their feelings, transform them into thoughts and put them down on paper and even speak them out loud. Um, and that gets them, gets it off their chest. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they provide uh, financial uh, planning and financial advice. There's a whole bunch of programs, and soon they're going to be going into uh, metalwork and forging. Wow. Um, so they're really taking off. Uh, another one uh, that I recently did uh, is called Frontline Arts. They cut up uniforms and make paper out of them. Really? And then there's Exit 12 Dance Company, which is another one where they do um, interpretive dances, but they do some stuff set to military themes, and they actually use um, prop M16s. And you can, if you go to go to the internet and Google Exit 12 Dance Company, and you can watch what I'm talking about. It's 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 wonderful, mm-hmm. and it's all about um, understanding that you're not alone understanding that there are other people that you're not unique in that regard. And there are other people grappling with the same demons that you are and getting your mind off of things and making you understand there are some things that you can do and some way to give back or to get involved in society and kind of get away from what's chasing you, although you will never do that. So would you count those uh, perhaps uh, Doug is the, um, the leading things you've learned from your involvement with let's talk vets well those yeah that uh, the transition and the uh, you know the effects that pts has i mean i i had the most benign military experience of anybody um you know running around north dakota my biggest problem was with the, with the snow snakes i mean you're from wisconsin you must have seen snow snakes before huh i've never even heard of a snow snake well, they're very insidious, and the problem is they're all white, so you can't see them. They is they'll, they'll sneak up on you, crawl up your pant leg, and freeze your butt off. But, um, so, I mean, so I'm running around chasing jackrabbits on the taxiway and uh, doing electrical work in a, in a place where nobody's going to shoot at me unless I happen to go out on, on, on time off and start messing with a farmer's daughter. 
<laughs> so it was very benign. But still, as I said, if you're in the military for 20 years and you come back out, and as one of my friends said, you know, one of the problems is I, I said, well, you they gotta they gotta learn to um, they have to learn to relate to the civilian population. So we have to teach the civilians about military. And he says, yeah, I got news for you. You also have to teach the military to metaphorically speak civilian. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, it's all about it. But I would say that the, yeah, the the PTS and veteran suicide and certainly some of the stuff, I mean, look, we're still arguing. The VA is still arguing about giving benefits for agent orange. Mm -hmm. And they're still fighting after 20 years in the sandbox. They're fighting about, giving benefits for people afflicted as a result of exposure to airborne particulate from burn pits. Mm-hmm. You know what a burn pit is? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, they dig a big hole and they put a bunch of stuff in there, plastic, rubber, medical waste, food, anything, and they, they pour a bunch of JP4 jet fuel on it and they just light a nice campfire. Mm-hmm. And it's a big thing and it just burns. It just sits there and cooks, and this stuff gets into the air. And these um, cancers and and ailments that these guys are uh, afflicted with are very similar to what the folks on the pile at 9-11 are afflicted with. Mm -hmm. And the VA's, well, but the VA is moving rapidly. We now have a list. It's called the Burn Pit Registry. So after 20 years, you're on the list. And... Being if 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 I want to be a little bit negative for a minute, I would say that perhaps the um, the plan is if we wait long enough, we won't have as many of these guys to deal with. We don't have to pay out as much money. That's a terrible thing to say, but that's the way I feel sometimes. How long do you think you'll continue with the show? Let's talk vets. As long as I can, and as long as they'll have me. Mm-hmm. My mind is. Uh, really good and uh my abilities are good and i'm i'm knocking on wood that i can continue for some time well based on your descriptions doug it sounds to me like the the show has it's not only created a community uh with veterans and others for that matter but uh would it be fair to say it's it's satisfied your desire for a commitment uh you know for good Absolutely. We all have to have a reason to get up in the morning. And I mean, in the morning is I, I get up early. So that's a great time to get out of bed. And if I'm working on a script, because I put a script together just as a guide. And the first thing I do is record my audio track. And then I plug my interviews or sound elements in there with bumper music and themes or whatever I'm doing mm-hmm. after after the fact. Any surprises during your uh experience with the show well the surprises have been that uh, i i did not have a real appreciation for some of the stuff that veterans go through and i didn't really understand how things work because i i didn't use i never used the va because i had private health insurance and i figured why should i take up the resources when somebody really needs them and and, and doesn't have the resources i have uh, needs them, so I'm not going to take up the resources. So I didn't really understand until I started talking to vets. I mean, I've, like I said, I've talked to vets. Uh, I talked to one guy who, who is also a writer, and uh, 
he started a, a publishing company called Post Traumatic Press. <laughs> you know, and, and and I didn't understand when you when you listen to some of the stuff these guys have recorded or written, it's pretty dark stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't understand what post traumatic stress was really about. And now I have a deep appreciation of that. It's amazing what life can hand us, I guess, isn't it, if we're open to it? Yeah, yeah, I've learned, uh, well, if you're not learning, you're dead, so I've learned <laughs> a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons in, in life, and I've been very fortunate. Mm -hmm. Doug, it's been a, just a, a pleasure to, to talk to you, and I appreciate uh, your sharing so many things. Is there anything you'd like to add, anything I might have missed or that you wanted to uh, reemphasize? Please feel free. Well, I, I, I looked at your um, podcast website, and I think the work that you are doing is uh, essential, and I applaud you for your efforts and time. Well, thanks. Appreciate that. I'm going to close it up, then. We've been visiting with uh, Doug Sandberg. He is uh, an Air Force and Vietnam-era veteran and currently host, as we've just been speaking about, of Let's Talk Vest, uh, Vets. That airs uh, twice a month on WJFF 90.5 FM, a station located in Jeffersonville, New York. Doug, again, thanks to you, and uh, we'll um, try to stay in touch. And I also want to thank uh, our listeners for joining us. Carrie Wheaton, by the way, is our audio editor and producer. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is sponsored by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and We Energies. Just a reminder, the Veterans Crisis Line is always available at 1-800-273-8255. Press the number 1 or text at 838-255 to chat. Uh, on behalf of our co-hosts, Mike Orban and uh, Aaron Schroffnagel, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again. <laughs>